0: so if a man were to just decide one day he was gonna sit down and pick up this book he decided I'm gonna see what the Bible is all about he begins in the very beginning he would find himself confronted challenged with these words in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light see everything that we know everything that we've been taught everything from experience and science and just the general laws of nature tell us that something cannot come from nothing that darkness does not self-manufacture light that voids do not fill themselves that formlessness does not become formation Unless something acts upon it. Something that must be outside of these laws that we have learned. Now, Scripture doesn't leave us to try and figure this out on our own, thankfully. They introduce us to someone. Not a law. Not a force. Not a thing. But a personal being called God. Immediately, in the very first sentences of this book, we're challenged as we see the things that don't match up with the laws of science the laws of nature our own experiences in this lifetime as we see this being this god doing things which have never been done before scripture tells us clearly the cause of all of this was god who was in the beginning that by his very speech let there be light and all of a sudden light existed a thing which had never yet been by just his word it's a challenge all throughout scripture, we're going, to be, we're going to be confronted with claims just as miraculous as this. as the creation of something from nothing. We're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to be confronted with, with challenges. And so we, we've got to go back to these words and ask, do we believe these to be true? When we, when we come to a burning bush that is not consumed, when we come to barren women that are given birth, when we come to the parting of seas, when we come to manna coming from heaven, when we come to water coming out of a rock, when we we see lame people allowed to stand up and walk, when we see blind people given given sight, when we see a virgin giving birth to a baby, and then the centerpiece of this entire book, when we see a man dead and buried for three days and then caused to rise again. All incredible claims. So we've got to determine for ourselves, do we believe these to be true? Do we believe there is a God? Do we believe that this God is able to do things that the laws of nature tell us are impossible? Their own experiences in this lifetime tell us are impossible. That the experts tell us are impossible. Because over and over and over again, as we're going to read this word, if we're going to take this word at its, at its root, we're going to take it as pure truth, and we're going to be confronted with promises like this. And it all begins right here in the beginning. With the reality of this God that created, by definition, he must be outside. Transcendent is the fancy word. I can't create a thing while being trapped within the thing. I can't create a thing while being bound by the laws of the thing. So scripture makes, us, makes it very clear to us that this God is, by definition, transcendent, above, beyond, outside of, far beyond his own creation. But at the same time, he has chosen to be imminent. He has chosen to be near. He has chosen to work upon and move within that very same creation. We see it, we see it talked about in the book of Acts that he is the God who made the world and everything in it being lord of heaven and earth he does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything if there's a god that is outside of all the laws he's created the very laws look newton didn't invent anything he discovered the laws that god made so If there's a God that has made those laws so, if there's a God that has breathed the stars, that has created everything that is, then it is nothing for that God to to work in supernatural ways. It is nothing for God to supersede and work outside of the laws of nature, which he has written into this place. This is a heart that's at the very root of Scripture. It runs all throughout, so that anyone that would sit down to read this book, anyone that would sit out to know God or to understand his word, they've got to wrestle with the question, do I believe this is true? do I believe that before anything was there was God do I believe that God created everything that is visible and invisible do I believe that that God is transcendent and can work outside of the laws of nature and science and our own experience and do I uh, do I believe that he has still yet chosen to work within this creation even though he's not bound by it if the question is no then what are we doing here if the question is no then why would we fool with this book If the answer to this question is no, then we're left with a bunch of nothing. Some well wishes, a little bit of wisdom, perhaps some fancy stories. But if the answer is no, that he can't do these things, then what are we doing here? I would pack up and go do something else on my Sunday mornings. I would give my life to studying biology or medicine or gardening for that matter. Something that would have some chance of making this life better for me. Something that would give me some chance of understanding the world that's around me. If the answer is no, that I don't believe that these are the ways that God works, I don't believe these truths, these promises about his nature, then I would give no level of authority to this book. I would walk away and give my life to something else, but that's what so many people do. So many people call themselves believers. They call themselves followers of God, servants of God, while at the same time they twist themselves into knots trying to explain away the miracles. The supernatural occurrences that we see in this world and this word. They fall for the naturalist lie that all there is is this observable universe, that this is all that there is, that everything that is must be able to be explained by the laws of nature and science and our own experiments and our own experience. They claim to be followers of Jesus Christ while at the same time trying to work around and write off the very miracles that he gave as evidence for his person. He's given us all throughout the book of Mark these evidences that he is the Christ the son of the most high God and that his message is to be trusted and believed and they work to just throw away all of those and they left with nothing more than just a, a good moral teacher. You've seen the way that they do this they'll, they'll come to these big robust miracles in scripture. They'll come to the burning bush and they'll say you know what that's not it there was a bush in that part of the world and that bush it had had hallucinogenic properties and so as that bush burned what happened was Moses got high. It was just a bad trip. That's really all that it was. They'll come to the parting of the Red Sea, and they'll say, yeah, they walked through the Red Sea, but it's really more like a marsh, really more like a marsh during low tide, So it just looked like that. There was some wind blowing up, and it just looked like they were crossing through. They'll come to the text like this morning with the feeding of the 5,000. They'll say, well, what really happened was Jesus was just really, really generous, and he shared his food, and it moved all the rest of the crowd to do the same. And really, there wasn't really any multiplication of food. It was just the spirit of generosity. That was the real miracle there. It was a human miracle. Is a miracle of changed hearts. Not real, any real physical miracle there. Demanding that Scripture fit into their worldview. Demanding that Scripture fit into what they think possible in this lifetime. Instead of coming to Scripture and say, I know this word is true. Because the God that has written it, the God that has spoken it, the God that has commanded it, he is true. And when my life doesn't match up with this word, then it's my life. My understanding is broken, not this word. And try, instead of trying to pigeonhole it. Fitting into their own expectations. You need to understand what you're left with there. Again, get in or get out. I don't understand it. I don't understand people that come and they, they try to stick this naturalist view of Scripture, try to write away all the miracles, but then still claim the name of Jesus Christ. Who is he then? Just a dude with some well wishes, a fancy moral teacher, maybe the best moral teacher of all time. But would I give my life to him? Would I devote my time? Would I sit under that authority? and again we see that it's out of embarrassment I I suppose because we live in this enlightened world where they figured out so much more you know these were just a bunch of fancy tales for a bunch of dumb people before science really developed we know so much better now so we get embarrassed we get sheepish but what we're left with is no hope no transformation no new life no promise of a resurrection nothing just a bunch of people left to fight our own battles, to try to mess around the edges and try to clean ourselves up. Is it any wonder so many people come to what they believe to be Christ? They join their life with what they believe to be the church, and they walk away unchanged and unimpressed? They not bound their life to the true God of the gospel. They haven't believed in the God who performs miracles. And so before we open this morning's text, I need to remind you this morning, friends. The God of miracles lives. It is nothing for him to do anything he wants within his creation. It is nothing for him to work in supernatural ways. It was nothing for him to make me into a new creation. It was nothing for him to hold fast to that new creation and promise that he was going to carry me through to the end. It is nothing for him to continue to speak through this living and powerful word. It is nothing for this word to know my life and to pierce me. It is nothing for this God to raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead and for me to hold on to that promise that someday he's going to do the same thing for me. If you don't believe that, then what are you doing here? Let's go do something else on Sunday mornings but if you believe that then we come to a text like this the multiplying of fish and loaves to so the feeding of the 5,000 and you recognize he didn't even break a sweat he didn't have to grunt he didn't have to scratch his head he didn't have to he wasn't even showing off it is nothing for the living God that created all that is to work in ways exactly like we see it this morning so go ahead and stand to your feet as we return to the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel We begin in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said to them, Excuse me. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, on the green grass. And so they sat in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you cause us to see your word as the standard? To seek to align our understanding of truth? To align our lives with your word rather than try to fit it into our our lens, our worldview, our perspective. Father, it is we that need to be changed as a result of your word, not the other way around. So, Father, we pray that this word would penetrate our hearts and change us this morning. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. It began like this, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus sending out of the 12 apostles. Two by two, he sent six pairs of them out. They were going to go out with the authority to heal, with the authority to cast out demons, with the authority even to raise people from the dead. Do you believe this is true? If you don't, what are you doing here? He also sent them out to teach, to preach the very same gospel that he had been proclaiming throughout the land. These miracles—they were an evidence that Jesus was the Christ. They were an evidence that this message was true. That they could give their lives to this gospel. That they could trust in Him as the transcendent God, the God that is not bound by what we observe here in this world. So He sent them out, and they went out, and it went exactly as He told them they would, as He told them it would. As they cast out demons, and they and they and they cleansed unclean people, and they taught the gospel. And then they came back, and they shared with them all that was done. And surely Jesus was continuing to teach them and to train them, and. They hadn't got it all figured out just yet. They weren't ready yet. This was just a short-term mission trip. As he sends them out, and then they come back, and they were going to continue to learn from him. Verse 31, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So the people just kept coming. And I have to wonder at times, how was everybody not already healed by now? If you've got Jesus, and now you've multiplied Jesus' authority and power to heal by 12, how are there still sick people in the land? And I I guess it makes sense because this was over more than a year's period and people would have kept getting sick, right? I mean some kid gets kicked by a horse, somebody develops a new illness, things would have continued to happen and they would have taken some time for some people to travel to him. Maybe some people were hesitant, they were doubtful, they waited until they heard multiple, um, multiple stories about Jesus' power and ability, but there were apparently still people. So people still, they just kept coming, they just kept coming and they were seeking the same kind of things. And not, not everybody needed healing. Some people just wanted to be entertained. Some people just wanted to be amazed. Some people were just curious. And so they continued to come, and they, they crowded around even, even more so now and to the point that they couldn't even eat. And we've seen this as a recurring theme throughout Mark's gospel. There were so many people, they didn't even have time to take a break and grab a bite. You've had days that are busy like that, where you're just going a million miles an hour, and you look up, and it's 6 o'clock, and you hadn't had lunch yet. But they've got these crowds that are just, just coming upon them, and they don't care about their ability to go eat. They don't care about their leisure. They don't care about, they, just, they want more of Christ. They want more of Him. They want more of the people, not for the right reasons, but they want more. And so Jesus tells them, hey, let's go away and get some rest, because Jesus knew what it was to be exhausted. Remember, He had slept in the boat in the middle of a storm after a long, busy day of teaching and preaching and healing. He knew what it was like and especially when you do this kind of spiritual work guys I can, I can tell you and I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me because there was nothing I'd rather be doing but at the end of a day of preaching buddy you're exhausted there, there's something about the, the, the spiritual the emotional not so much physical but there is just an exhaustion that comes with the proclaiming of God's Word and I have to believe it has something to do with spiritual warfare I have to believe that it has something to do with my own sin I'm having to overcome my own wretchedness God is overcoming my own wretchedness, my own sin, but the reality that, that, I, that I am who I am and I'm trying to proclaim this glorious news, it's an exhausting thing. You've experienced that. All of you as ministers of the gospel, you've experienced that as you've taken this word out there. Now multiply that by the heat and by the crowds and by the fact that Scripture tells us that Jesus felt as the power went out from him when people touched him, as people were healed when they touched his robe, came into contact with him with just a word. So they were exhausted and so jesus tells them we need to go away for a time They need a rest just like all of us It's a gift of god these cycles of rest that god has built into his creation These daily rests as you lay down at night These weekly rests with the sabbath These longer stretches of of sabbatical you might call them as you go away for a retreat that god had built these in But the true rest is found in him. You notice he says come away with me This is the call to all of us that you would come to him and in him you would find rest Because as you come to Jesus Christ, what you recognize is, I don't have to labor anymore. Not the way I once did. I don't have to develop an identity for myself. I don't have to fight for my own name. I don't have to overcome my own sins. I can come to Jesus Christ and in Him find everything that I need. That's where rest is found. And even yet still, in these little periods of rest, it's not the ultimate rest. Right? If you look at the end of the third chapter and, and halfway through the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, it's talking about this rest, this promised rest, this rest that we will, that we will finally experience in heaven. Hebrews 4 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is wonderful as the ability to rest in this lifetime is, it's just a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. Now, heaven is not going to be a place of sloth or laziness or inactivity. It's going to be great activity, but it's going to be joyful. It's going to be shed of sin we shed of thorns so that we look and we see as jesus calls these men away to come away with him for a time of rest it's a promise of eternity it's a reminder of the rest that we long for how many of you you take a nap and you wake up more tired than when you went lay down that's not going to be the case of heaven so he tells them would you come away with me verse 32 and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them so where exactly the guys went we're, we're not completely sure we we assume that I think it's a safe assumption to believe they probably headed out from Capernaum that had been the home base there on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee kind of up there at the top left corner now what we read in John's gospel is that they went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. What we read in Luke's gospel is that they went to Bethsaida. We don't know exactly where Bethsaida is, though, right? There's, there's a pretty good estimate that some archaeologists and some Bible historians tell us, kind of right up at the northern tip, almost where the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee. This is, there, there's a town there that today we believe to be Bethsaida, the place where Jesus and his disciples went on this day. This place was the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. Now, by the time of Jesus, we know that Philip had moved to Capernaum. That's where he lived with his wife and apparently his mother-in-law. But it seems like where they headed was kind of just up the, up the shoreline. And this makes sense because it says that people came from all around and that they beat them there, that they ran on foot and they beat them there. Well, the idea that they could have run around this eight-mile lake, right? The Sea of Galilee is not giant even by a lake standard, but still that you could run all the way around the diameter, diameter, circumference. What is that one? Circumference thank you, of, of this lake and beat them there, it's not very likely. So it seems probably that where they were headed was to the northern tip where the Jordan River comes down into the Sea of Galilee and like they would have just kind of cruised across that corner, just cut off the corner, and the people ran and they beat them there. That's what it says. People from all around, from all the towns, that they ran ahead and they saw what was happening and they wanted to get there before them and so they beat them there this town called Bethsaida. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. You can imagine the groaning of the disciples as they see the, the crowd running after them, right? Their retreat just got busted up. They see the people coming, and they thought they were going to have some time alone with the Lord. They thought they were going to be able to sit down and have maybe a, a proper meal. But instead, what they probably did was whatever food they had, they would have stuffed it in their cheeks and tried to get some sustenance in their belly. They hadn't had time to eat back there, and they knew that they were about to be greeted by this crowd, and so they would have just shoveled it down, and they, their retreat had just been busted up. Their time of rest had just been broken up, and this is only fitting. You remember at the beginning of Mark's gospel, as Jesus, after a long day of teaching and healing and preaching, he had went away to be with the Father. What happened that next morning? The disciples came and said, hey, dude, the crowds are looking for you. you got to go back to the crowds. So I can only imagine Jesus smirked a little bit as they were ready for a time of rest, and he went, hey, the crowds are here. So the crowds were there, and they were waiting for him as they came off. So when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them. So, if the disciples were put out, and in fairness, we're not said that the disciples are put out here. They didn't tell us that they were frustrated with this. But if they were, Jesus certainly was not. Did Jesus need rest? Absolutely. Did he desire time alone and maybe a nice quiet meal with his friends? Probably. But he sees the people and he has compassion. The Greek word here is splanchnon. Now, it's interesting because this word, this this Greek word that comes out to compassion, it means affection in your inward parts, it's only, as best I can tell, it's only used in the Gospels when speaking of Jesus or when Jesus is speaking of someone through one of his parables. This doesn't mean that there weren't compassionate people in that day, but it's just an interesting fact that it's only used with reference to Jesus or people that Jesus is speaking about in his parables. And we need to recognize that this compassion, it isn't just an inward thought. It isn't just feeling sorry for somebody. It isn't just pity or sympathy for somebody. It moves to action. In the case of Jesus Christ, it always moves towards action, like the Good Samaritan. That's one of the times that Jesus used this word. And what we saw there in the story of the Good Samaritan was he didn't just have pity. He didn't just walk by and shake his head and go, man, it must really stink to be that guy. He didn't run to the next town and go, you will not believe the sorry sight that I saw along the road. He got involved. It cost him greatly. Financially, cost him effort. There was danger involved there. More than likely, he got involved in this man's life. And it occurred to me as I was thinking of this: we live in a strange time. This time with social media that allows everybody to have this public platform, and we live in this strange time where everybody, they, every sad story they come across, they feel the urge to just blast it out there and talk about how sad it is, but they never actually get involved. Now, look, it's, it's good, and it's right to bring attention to injustices. It's good, and it's right to warn each other about the evils that are in this world. But at some point, you got to do something. At some point, we got to get involved in something. And, and this, is, this is what James was talking about in his letter. James 2, 14 through 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things that are needed for their body. What good is that? What good is it? What have you accomplished? Listen, tears are right and good. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was sorrowful over the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem, over the death of his friend. He felt incredible compassion, but that compassion moved him to actually do something. At some point, we got to act. At some point, we got to get involved, and that means we're going to get hurt that means we're going to be taken advantage of that means things that we thought were everything are gonna be put on the back burner at this moment these guys thought that their purpose that their mission for getting in that boat was going and spending time alone with Jesus Christ Do you have any time idea how many times I wanted to be alone with God but something came up and I'm ashamed to admit to you as your pastor there are times when I felt frustrated with people that had needs because it drew me away from things that I thought were so much more important I can't be doing this, I need to be in God's word. I can't be doing this, I need to be having my quiet time. I can't be doing this, I need to be preparing for a sermon. God doesn't give us that right. He says, do something. We look at the man laying in the dish, we go, this is awful. God, should we, you should do something. He says, you're there, dummy. Do something. Verse 34. And when they went ashore, they saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Part of the compassion that Jesus had for these people is he sees them, and he sees them like sheep. All throughout the Old Testament, God speaks about his people as sheep, and he speaks about the leaders that he's placed over them as shepherds, whether that was kings, religious leaders, priests, as as shepherds that were over these these sheep. They They were intended to be with. To care for to look out for to provide for to put their own needs on the back burner for the case of the sheep and the reality is they failed they failed time and time again and God didn't pull any punches when he spoke to them about this Jeremiah 10 through 10 verse 21 says this for the shepherds are stupid for the shepherds are stupid this isn't the NLT Uh, this isn't like a paraphrase I I read out of the ESV which is word-for-word translation For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. Specifically, what he's pointing to is the reality that these men were not preaching the the full counsel of God. They were refusing to point people back to the law. They were refusing to show mercy, to act in righteousness. They had taken their office. They had taken their position as shepherd, and they'd use it in order to build themselves up. They cared more about their own reputation, their own comforts, their own name in the streets, than they did about representing God and His Word. And so as we, I, w- I want you to look at it, Pat, turn your Bible to Ezekiel 34 if you can, just real quick. This it's a long chunk of, chunk of Scripture, it's going to be hard for you to follow along if you're not reading it in your own Bibles. So turn to Ezekiel 34. So, so in, the, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, the, the chapter right before this is one of my very favorite of all the, of all the prophetic words God is speaking through Ezekiel, and he's warning the people. He's talking about the watchman. He's saying, listen, people of Israel, if you would put a watchman on the tower, and his job is to watch out for danger, if he doesn't blow his trumpet when danger comes, and everybody in the town dies, that blood is on his hands. But if the enemy comes, and the watchman blows his horn, and the people refuse to listen, then he's clean. He's done his job. So it's in that context of our responsibility, the responsibility of the watchman, of the shepherd, of the over- overseer, of the elder, the responsibility to cry out when danger is near. And then we come to verse 34. I'm going to uh, read verse 1 through 6, and I'm going to skip down to verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, All shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. Now the promise down in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, They have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out of out from all my peoples, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed they shall feed on the mountain of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. See this promise. The shepherds had failed. The shepherds had made themselves fat. They had made themselves happy. Specifically, as we... Again, as we look at it in this context, they would refuse to preach the word of God. They would refuse to teach the word of God. The thing that these people most desperately needed. And so he said, okay, I'm going to step in and I'm going to do this thing because they are my sheep. You need to understand this, church. We're going to see here in a minute how God has appointed shepherds, under shepherds. He promised here in, verse, in chapter 34 that that shepherd was going to be one from the, from the line of David. Of course, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. You need to understand that God is appointed under Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. He's appointed under shepherds. But, dear friends, you need to recognize that ultimately your sustenance, your provision, your protection, it does not come from any man. He says, I will step in when the shepherds have failed. I will send one that's going to be the good shepherd out of the house of David, and he's going to care for the sheep, and now he's here. The promised shepherd is here. Just to make sure we don't miss it, Jesus in John 10, 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's about more than just feeding. It's about more than just being with them. It's about laying down your life. It's about giving every bit of who you are and being willing to physically lay down your life if that's what it takes for the case of the sheep. Were the sheep innocent? Had they done no wrong? Of course not. Were they going to answer for their own failures? Absolutely. But their shepherds had failed them. And he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So we see immediately what, what it means to be a shepherd to these sheep. What is the thing they needed most? It wasn't food. It was He would teach them. Their greatest need was the word of God. You remember that when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, 40 days of fasting, of course he was hungry. Of course he needed food. So Satan comes and he tempts them. He says, hey, turn, this, uh, turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus say? Man is not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what these people needed. If they had all starved there with no bread for their bellies, what they needed in that moment was to hear the word of God. That was the job of the shepherd, was to faithfully preach the word of God. Again, that's what God has called shepherds to do today. There's a beautiful scene toward the end of John's Gospel where... Um, Jesus is there, and, he's, and they just had this miraculous cache of fish, and he's there with the disciples, and he's having breakfast on the shore there, and he's, he talks to Peter. Peter denied him just three days earlier, right? Peter, Peter had, had denied him um, and, and, um, and turned his back on him, and now Jesus three times says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And with each time that Simon, uh, Simon Peter replies yes, he tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. This is the reality. It's a call to preach. What they need more than anything else is they need the word of God. Are we going to attend to them physically? Absolutely. You do something. You act. But you recognize that behind that action, that more desperately than that action, what they need is to hear the truth of God's word because they are sheep that are lost. They are sheep that are scattered. They are sheep without a shepherd. Is everybody going to follow after the shepherd? Is everybody going to appreciate the preaching? No, we're going to find that in a moment. There's going to be many people that are going to walk away and say, what about my belly? I don't care about this word that you have for me. But there is no faithful shepherd. There is no good shepherd. There is no good leader unless they do what the good shepherd did, and that is to teach. That is to preach. That's what he does for them. Now, now that he's fed them spiritually, he's ready to care for them physically. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and the villages and to buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples were thinking practically here. The sun was getting low in the sky. They had, they had gone away to this desolate place. They needed to go somewhere where they could find some food, where they could buy some food for themselves. They were thinking practically. Now, I don't, th- this shows to me, this reveals to me a unique relationship. These guys knew what Jesus could do. They had gone out and done the same kind of things that Jesus could do. They knew they had to have known. Or maybe because they hadn't seen this kind of miracle before. They hadn't seen a multiplication miracle just yet. So maybe they didn't, they didn't understand if they couldn't see it. But their idea is, hey, let's send the people out. It's very practical. It's caring. Could this have been a, re- a response of compassion by them? Maybe. Or maybe it was selfishly, send these people away so we can be alone with you and get some rest. But they come up with this practical solution. But instead, Jesus comes back with this. You give them something to eat. And he said to them, and they said to him, excuse me, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So their initial response is, what do you mean us? Give them What? And then they respond with, should we give them 200 denarii worth of food? Now, I don't, we don't know that they had 200 denarii. A denarii is a silver coin. It's equal to a, a day's wage of an average day labor. So by today's standard, that's $133.71. So you multiply that out times 200, you get $26,742. That's a pretty big, pretty big feast. Now, you can buy a lot of Taco Bell with $26,000. We don't know that they had this, but what we know from the other Gospels is that Philip, Philip is the one talking to, talking to Jesus, Philip said, Look, even if we were to go and spend this $26,000 in today's dollars worth of, worth of coin on food, everybody would just get a little bite. Nobody would be filled. Even, even with such an extravagant amount of money, even with eight months worth of wages, we couldn't buy these people enough to eat. And he says to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five. And two fish so Sunday school teachers when they teach this story they almost always teach it out of John's gospel because in John's gospel we find that Andrew got this bread and this fish from a little boy and so what we like to teach in the Sunday school class is about how this story is all about this little boy and how this little boy just gave everything that he had to God and the reality is He had two fish and five loaves. Now, the fish, we don't know exactly what kind of fish. They can't have been giant. A little boy was carrying them. So we may even think about something almost as small as a sardine. We don't know. But whatever the fish was, it was probably dried and salted so that it would travel well. And then he had five barley loaves. More than likely, these would have been like little little flatbreads. And so the little boy's mom probably said, hey, if you're going to go chasing after this Jesus guy, take some lunch. And that would have been his plan, to take these fish, put them on these probably these little crispy little flatbreads, and, and to eat them. And so now he's asked to give those. And so preachers take this text and they, t- they make it all about this boy. How the moral to the story is that God needs what we have, that we just got to give our best to God, and then he can really do something. That ain't it. You need to remember that whatever this little boy had, it came from God in the first place. That the moral to this story is the power of God, the provision of God, the compassion of the good shepherd. The rest and sustenance that found in him. Did the little boy do well? It seems like it. We don't really know. Andrew might have had to beat him up and take it. We're not told. I like to imagine he did it. I like to imagine he was one of the faithful and he showed up and he said, Here, sir, could you do something with this? That he had some great faith in Jesus and he knew him to be a miracle worker and trusted him with it. But we don't, we're not told all that because the story is about the little boy. Dear friends, you, never, you need to make sure you never get it twisted into believing that God needs anything you have. He doesn't need a thing that you have. He can make something from nothing. But there is a very real truth to the fact that you get to join him. He sees fit to let you join him. I've told a story before about a gazebo we had in our backyard. We had a gazebo in our backyard that my dad and my grandfather built. And it was, it was cool. Right? It was big, beautiful. We all hung out out there. All our birthday parties were out there. Well, by the time they were building, I was probably eight years old, seven years old, something like this. And they would let me come out there and help them. And every single nail I drove, it was one of these click, click, click. And then I would just hammer it all the way down in sideways. You know what I'm talking about. Hammer it all the way down in sideways, hoping they wouldn't see how horrible a job I did with my three nails that I nailed. But it didn't matter. When people showed up, I showed them the gazebo that I built. <laughs> God allows us to be that little boy. He chooses to include us. He chooses to work through us. The story isn't about the little boy. But don't you know that little boy told that story all the days of his life? That was my bread and my fish that God used in that way. We don't do things so that we have a cool story to tell. But how many times have I missed out on being a part of what God was doing? Because I thought if I hand this to God, what am I going to eat? If I give from this little bit that I have, I'm going to starve. But he did well. Verse 39, and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So there's green grass, so it tells us they weren't out in the desert. And in fact, in John's gospel, it tells us that it was the Passover. It was the time of the Passover, which means it's spring. Now, I've told you, all right, we need to pay attention to the Passovers. That's how we mark time in Jesus' ministry. So by my understanding, this is the third Passover during Jesus' earthly ministry. That means he's come to the end of his second full year. He's now one year from the cross. He's now one year out from the cross based on the fact that it was the, it was the Passover time. And so it was springtime, and there was nice grass, and he has them to lie down. He has them to sit down. And as I was reading through that text about the good shepherd in Ezekiel 34, and now as I talked to you about them, him causing them to lie down in green grass, where does your mind go immediately? Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Causing me to lie down in green pastures. He's playing these things out all of scripture pointing towards Jesus Christ and he's living it out right here He's living it out with these people and he calls them to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties And so surely as he's organizing these people it would have drawn your mind to the exodus to the way that God was always He was organizing right he was organizing the people into groupings whether it was to go out into battle Whether it was to provide for them, whether it was to judge them, whatever it is He's doing this and the bread that comes it would reminded us of of the manna from heaven And so what we see here again is another signpost pointing to Jesus Christ out there in this barren place, causing them to sit down, organizing them, feeding them, and taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided two fish among them all. So This would remind us of the Lord's Supper now, as he gives a blessing and he breaks the bread so we got to be careful, though, that we don't try to force anything that's not there, right? Yes, it reminds us of the will, of the exodus and the manna in heaven. Yes, it reminds us of the Lord's Supper. But this miracle stands on its own. This is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that we read about in all four Gospels. This is a big deal. This is another one of those turning points in Jesus' ministry. As he does this big public display of this, this multiplication, he's going to then pull back and, and, and do mostly private teachings from this point forward. He's not going to go out to the big crowds. He's going to turn away much of the crowd here at the end of this. But what we see here is... And this miracle, is God proving that the good shepherd provides. Jehovah Jireh, that the God who provides, he's going to provide for his people. He's going to call you away to a place of rest. He's going to call you away to be alone with him, and he's going to meet your needs. You don't have to worry about these things. We talked about this with the sending out of the missionaries. We don't have to, we don't have to play all the what ifs. We don't have to plan for every eventuality. We don't have to get 10 steps ahead of God. We just say, God, what do you have me to do today? Come to be alone with you? I will come to be alone with you, and I'll allow you to be my provider. I will trust you to be my provider, even when there is no earthly way that I see any provision coming, even when all the people around us are saying, look, you need to call it quits for the day, and you need to head into town, and you need to feed yourself. Even then, I'm going to trust God with everything that I need. So he's proving that he can do that right here, and I want you to see the contrast between the two feasts that we've seen. Remember last week, we talked about the feasts that evil King Herod, uh, Herod Antipas threw for himself. Compare that with what we see this morning. As we saw in the case of Herod, the richest of food, the finest of wine. Now with Jesus, it's some barley loaves and some plain fish. We see with Herod Antipas, they're in a fancy banquet hall. With Jesus, they're lying on a, on a green hill in some grass. In the case of Herod Antipas, there's only the most important people of Galilee. He had to surely show an invitation to get in. With Jesus Christ, there was no credentials needed. Everybody was welcome. Everybody was allowed to come. With Herod, what we saw was a fake king boasting about his own authority. In the case of Jesus Christ, we saw the king of kings blessing the food and asking the blessing from his father, thanking his father for what had been provided. What we saw with Herod Antipas was an evil, fake king showing no mercy on a good, righteous, and holy man. And what we see here is the only truly good and holy and righteous man having compassion on sinners. See how everything is just turned absolutely upside down when you come into the kingdom of God. Verse 42, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So we're not told the mechanics of how this thing works. We're just told that he gave thanks, that he broke the bread, that he started tearing up pieces of fish, and that he had his disciples distributing it. Now, God willing, next week, actually next week, I think we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But the following week, when we come to the follow-up text, God willing, we're going to read about the fact that these guys still didn't understand it, and yet he continued to use them. You don't have to get it all figured out to be used by God. You don't have to understand how it all works to be used by God. And so he was going to use them to distribute. And we're not told. We're not told of the mechanics of how this thing happened, probably for good reason. Because then there would be a bunch of hucksters up here trying to, trying to replicate it. And there are people that, that say that what happened here was, well, this wasn't really a miracle. You know, the disciples, they had run ahead and they had hit a bunch of food and some caves. And then just through some hocus pocus, they were convincing the people that they were doing this. Got to determine, do you believe this? And we've seen in the Old Testament miracles like this, both through Elijah and Elisha. we had seen God taking little and making it into much. It's seen God doing miracles like this and now here he is and he's providing it says that the people ate and they had their field But we're also not told that there was any astonishment with all the other miracles with all the other teachings We're told about the astonishment of the people the amazement of the people and here We're not told that the people are amazed at all. So I don't know why that is I don't know if this because they didn't fully recognize what was happening. Had they grown bored? Was this just an ordinary miracle just an ordinary occurrence to them because they had seen Jesus working this way? We don't know but it says they had their fill and they weren't they weren't amazed there's some people that say that all it was was just a little morsel, that this was a, this, because this was a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, that all he did was gave everybody just a little, just a microscopic little piece to have, almost like the Lord's Supper. They wouldn't be filled. And there shouldn't, sure wouldn't be 12 baskets full to pick up at the end. What we see is that when God acts, there's more than enough. This isn't the bare minimum. He met not only every need of the people that were sitting there in that moment for their belly, but he met the needs of the, of the, of the apostles going forward. This was probably what, that basket, what those baskets meant. This was going to be their food as they traveled on. And he provided more for enough, more than enough for these people. God's not limited. God doesn't meet the bare minimum. So he showed his power over, over this. And it says that there was 5,000 people. Matthew makes clear that there were women and children there. And so probably this 5,000 would have been double that, triple that. We don't know. 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. You're talking about just a massive feast just the logistics of handing out all this food, no wonder he had to organize them in the hundreds and fifties, but just, just handing out, just distributing all this food would have been just a monumental task. Wouldn't it have been easier? Wouldn't it have been easier for Jesus just to send them away? Look, there were apparently towns nearby. That's why the apostles said, let's send them away. There were apparently towns nearby, and it was apparently expected that some of them had money to provide for themselves. There were other ways that God could have met this, and yet he chose to do it in this way to make clear that I am not limited by your resources. I am not limited by what you give to me. And so he he fed them. He fed them all. And surely there were people there that hated Jesus' guts. You remember that there were people that were following after Jesus just to try and catch him up. Remember they were picking the heads of grain as they walked through the field on the Sabbath? There are people that just fall around just trying to find an excuse to accuse him of something. So surely there were some people that were eating Jesus' bread while cursing his name. They were eating food from his hand while trying to catch him in a lie. And then we know for the rest of the crowd that not all of them were true disciples. They weren't going to follow him forever because they had this idea of who the Messiah was. They had these political aspirations, these military aspirations, these immediate needs that they wanted met. Specifically, they wanted the yoke of Rome to be lifted off of them. And so they wanted somebody that was going to come, that was going to fight a battle, and that was going to get Rome off their back. That was their anticipation for this. And so what we're told in John's gospel is that after Jesus and the apostles, after they leave, they chase them down again. They say, Give us more of this bread. He said, Look, that's why you're here. You had supper last night, and you want breakfast this morning, but you're never going to be satisfied. Don't you understand? Bread is never going to satisfy you. You're going to eat it, you're going to pass it, and then what? You're going to have to consistently come back. And so he told them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And many of the disciples turned, walked away, and didn't follow him any longer. They wanted an immediate relief from whatever their pain was. They wanted an immediate and physical response to whatever they thought their needs to be in that moment. And when he challenged them to really have a relationship with him, To find their provision in him, to find their identity in him, to be really joined with him in a meaningful way, they wandered away. They would rather continue to be sheep without a shepherd than to follow after a shepherd that demanded this of them. We want shepherds that throw us some bread. We don't want shepherds that challenge us with the word of God. We don't want shepherds that, that call us to actually follow in the suffering that you're headed towards. Just meet our needs and shut up, Jesus, was essentially their message to him. Dear friends, I need to tell you that's the challenge of the American church. There's so many people out there that they've been they've been sold a lie and it's not their fault. They're sheep without a shepherd. There's so many people out there that have had shepherds that came along and told them that God will meet your every need. And by meet your every need what they meant was whatever physically you want in that moment. They made, they made God into a genie in a bottle. They had made Jesus Christ into nothing more than a butler. And so when they show up into a place like this, and they hear that what they're actually called to do is to lay down their lives. What they're actually called to do is to live in accordance with God's word. Instead of seeking after barley loaves, they're to seek after this word as their sustenance. as the thing which is going to provide for them. They walk away. They don't want that kind of shepherd. Because they've got something less. They've received something less. So that's the challenge for you, that's the challenge for me, that's the challenge for us. Would we go out there and tell people about this shepherd that the world doesn't want to follow? We go out there and tell people about this shepherd that is nothing like the world's expectation. We go out there and tell people about this shepherd that most people, they're going to find despicable. They're going to find offensive, and they're going to wander away. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that... um, In that passage, you said you were going to gather your sheep from every nation. We thank you, Father, that you did not confine your words to the Jewish nation. Father, that it was your will from the very beginning that you would call people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, even Gentiles like us. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us without a shepherd, that you have sent Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, to provide for us, to care for us, to feed us your word. We thank you, Father, that he is everything we need, our all in all, but Father, we confess that we are often a divided people chasing after the things that this world tells us we need instead of truly, fully, and completely trusting in him. So it is our desire this morning, Father, that we would walk out of this place committed, that by the power of your spirit and under the authority of your word, that we would walk out of this place is a people committed to knowing Christ and Him crucified and that everything else is just an add-on. Father, as we uh, lift our voices now to praise You, it is our hope that these words would be pleasing to Your ears. To Your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.